Hello, everyone, and welcome, or maybe welcome back, to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me, as usual, is my good friend, Ben. How's it going down there? Hello. Hello. Can you hear me all the way out there? I'm feeling a little bit lost. I'm lost, I tell you. Someone's rolled the wrong number on my hex crawl, and I've ended up going southwest instead of southeast. I'm halfway up a mountain. There's a random encounter. Is it Gaz? I see in the distance. Never eat shredded wheat. That's why you need northeast, southwest. Oh, yes, it is. It's me. It's very warm. Isn't it? Yeah. It's uh, sultry, some might say. But, yeah, when, when you're outside wandering, it could be all kinds of weather. Couldn't there? That could be a feature, in fact, of wilderness exploration. So, yes, welcome, everyone, to our second in a, a series of X, as you put on a Twitter thread, because we don't know how many it's going to be. <laughs> you remember last time we talked about dungeoneering? Well, another pillar of gaming is uh, wilderness, or, or going out and either getting to the dungeon or just generally exploring. Yep. Whole cornucopia things could occur. Quite often, there's very little occurs, and somebody might roll a wandering monster table, and that's about it. Which seems a slightly dull way of dealing with a fantastical kingdom that you might be travelling through. Indeed. Indeed. Let's go back. Let's go back to the dawn of the hobby, shall we? Oh, yes. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm switching to sepia. <laughs> I'm switching on CFAX. Okay, so Dawn of the Hobby, Dungeons and Dragons, all that shizzle. So we talked last time about dungeons being kind of like the default activity. Um, and in Dungeons and Dragons, there was no outdoors originally at all. Mm. Um, and I think most people kind of our vintage uh, recognise the, the Red Basic book and the Blue Expert book um, as typified by the Isle of Dread scenario, one that I know you hold dear to your heart. Love it. Um, and that was kind of one of the first times, really, that um, that the only role-playing game in town for that kind of stuff had let you do more than just pad down a gridded piece of paper one square at a time with a 10-foot pole. Mm. You either, as you alluded to, you, you had a starting town, perhaps, or a village, and there was always a little overland journey to get to the dungeon and possibly one to come back. And there was a distant city, maybe a coast nearby, Characters could start coming from different lands, which it wouldn't have mattered before. But this was almost revolutionary, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, D&D completely changed its rule set to accommodate it. You went from like inches to yards and all kinds of arcane measurements <laughs> that I could never quite figure out. And you went from squares to hexes for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and ones that I, I could never... Where the heck do you ever get hex paper in 1980? I mean... Crikey, I actually tried to do one by freehand once to do a traveller subsector. It did not look good. <laughs> even, with, even with Photoshop, now it takes a little while to get It's hard work, it. isn't it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, Dawn of the Hobby, this happens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut right to the end now. I think that your outdoorsy wilderness adventure, for want of a better term, maybe we'll come up with a better term tonight. That's the default scenario now. I think you are assumed to be above ground surrounded by forests and lakes and cities and roads, no matter what the genre. I don't think you're in one tiny little place, unless it's quite a niche game, maybe something very indie and focused on something like that. But I don't think that dungeons are the default. I, have, I suspect it might be the wilderness. Thoughts on that? Um, yeah, maybe. I think from a D&D point of view, it's quite often location-based, rather wilderness. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm thinking of, I can't remember what it's called, is it the Fandelva stuff? Yeah. The, the, the First start set for 5e, yeah. Yeah, and the follow-on thing from that, the, there was a lot of, like you, can, you have dungeons of sorts, but they're like little tiny ones, like mm -hmm. an old, it used to be an old dwarf's temple, and now it's got an archa jelly and a black button in it or something. And that's like a little mini dungeon. But each of the adventures has kind of got a little map like that, and gnomes, caves, and some other bits and pieces. So... They're not dungeon dungeons, as we remember, perhaps like they're layers or they? something. But yeah, they're just little bijou ones. And I don't recall much from that, those sets actually about being out and about, particularly. So yeah, there's a lot more walking around and going to different places. I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, an adventure can be had of going and discovering things. But I still think, certainly for D and Dizzle, there's a, a you know a, a, still a fondness for having a location that you then explore or root things out of or that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's definitely more of it. I remember X1 Isle Dread had a, a fold-out map in the back, so it was like two sides of A4 or whatever the American equivalent is, book size. And the Isle Dread's right at the bottom, and it just shows you a bit of coastline at the top for the generic place we normally mm. have mentioned. 
and then it's loads of seeing hexes. And I wrote, even at my early formative years, looking at that, I thought, what is the point? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> you made an extra big double sized map, there's just blue squares or blue hexes running. Or, well, it was grey, I think, dot, dot matrix kind of grey colour rather yes. than actual colour. But yeah, and you just rolled some um, random encounters along the way in case there, and if there weren't any, then you need two more hexes the next day or how many hexes mm. it was, which seemed an absolute waste of time. Yeah. But the island itself is a bit more like today's stuff where it had a bunch of different things happening in different hexes. Mm. Uh, and it was about exploring and what do you fancy looking at next. So in a way, almost, the island's a bit of a dungeon. Yeah, it is. With little, with little subsectors and other things going on around it. Yeah. No, I get that. I, it, I think it could just comes from... Um, it's kind of an obvious next step to take, isn't it? People get creative with stuff. Guy Gaxanaris can give you the basics of medieval battles in hallways. And then you just want to start doing something else. Um, yeah. And it was caverns. And then it was like, well, where's that come from? And then realism bites everybody on the bottom. And everyone gets an idea that perhaps this dungeon needs to have a reason to exist. And where's the toilet facilities? And and how far away from town is it? And why isn't town overrun with hobgoblins every 10 minutes? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those are quite good world building questions. And it but what it what it had what it did lead to, I think, is sometimes um sort of strange fantasy land kind of concepts. Mm. and you can look at the hex maps that had like a single colour in them. Um, one colour was for desert, and one colour was for mountain. On the other side of the mountain was the Arctic. Yeah. Um, various swamps and what have you. And these hex as well. This is what Americans do for you, right? My beloved colonials, I feel for you, I do. You live in a very big country. You think nothing of driving three hours to go and get a, uh, some milk, right? But in our country, a six-mile hex... We can get about 15 villages in that <laughs> and probably have done. And they've yeah. probably been at war with each other for a while and have cheese throwing competitions. There's an awful lot of history that you could put in six miles. Mm. And, you know, these giant savannas that the American games companies gave me, they did, it was all kind of a bit odd, actually. I didn't, yeah. didn't really feel like the Tolkien walk in the woods. Um, and we should probably talk about Tolkien because I think there's a lot of stuff and I'm sure you'll get to your one of your favourite games on this too. Yeah. Um, but my my ideas of of trekking across mountain ranges, which I've never done in real life, um, did not come from D and D at all. Because that sort of trek across the mountain range, it, it it didn't do a great job of feeling feeling like the adventure stories that I was reading as a kid. No, yeah, I totally agree. Um, in my ancestral homeland, Blackburn, there's uh, Burnley's about ten miles away. In between mm. those two, there's Accrington, and there's a bunch of other towns. So yeah, a six mile hex. You'd get one d six towns, yeah. If you're in the northwest or somewhere like that, you certainly wouldn't get an exotic rock laying on the beach, <laughs> would you? And that's all there is for <laughs> six miles. <laughs> in awesome. There's plenty of hits called ever or nothing. <laughs> yeah, a tree with nothing. a bird on, really, just one bird. <laughs> but in the distance, you could see an exotic rock laying on the beach. <laughs> Rubbish. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things on this. There's the Warhammer kind of thing as well that we have in the UK that I think meant that traveling outside was sort of dangerous. Yeah. You know, there's there's rumours of the Beastmen or whatever. There's, there's weird things in the woods and stuff, which, which did, you know, was a real a present threat. Even if you play the old campaign, there's like bandits and stuff, which are dangerous. And Tolkien definitely gave that as well. Like the, the people that went on adventures were considered curious folk. Mm. Like most of the hobbits wanted to stop in the village. And, you know, smart pipe where you didn't have a nice time. Like nobody wanted to go beyond the Shire. Why on earth would you want to do that? It's mm. all kinds of crazy stuff. So that does feed into, uh, you know, your bantering party for D&D or anything else, really, that you're supposed to be the special individuals who want to do, you know, the extra things. But in that source material, like going for journeys is a, is a you know, something that you don't do without thinking. You mm. know, you want to plan for it, which feeds into role playing. And there's, there's tons of stuff that he has about, oh, which way we're going to go to get to this place. And do we go over the mountain passes? And what if the weather's bad? And you know, well, we have to yeah. go back. And that means we have to do this other thing. And it uh, so sometimes role playing games don't have that magic of actually going on a journey in low tech environments. It's actually quite arduous. It it really is. And it's not about buying like you know some iron rations. Like you, there's all kinds of things that you might have to come up against. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of realism in games at all, uh, especially in fantasy games. Or I think it's, sometimes it's just a bit overdone. I suppose. Um, but if you've ever been camping at my age, or your age for that matter, <laughs> and that's with modern technology, no thank you very much. Uh, glamping is the absolute lowest I will go these days. 
Um, right. Iron rations. You imagine that a tracker bar. That's what you got for twenty four hours. Yeah, and, you know, you could take a long rest, but in with a bedroll and uh, and a tracker bar, and and you better not set a fire in case the beastmen come and it's raining. Yeah. This is awful. I mean, Glastonbury's on at the moment, isn't it? So there's a yeah. lot of people experiencing living under canvas, and um, <laughs> but, you know, like it's it's navigation. Oh, we'll do it by the stars. Well, that's fine until you're in Mertwood. Now we're gonna do. <laughs> you can't see any stars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, um, worlds of the stuff. I really like it, and and I and I love I love landscapes in fiction. You know, the really good authors that can take you on that journey. Tolkien being one of them. You know, it, it, beautiful walks, almost nothing but sometimes. Mm. Um, and I do like those. And I also love the idea of that sort of sense of awe and wonder. You get it in video games really well now, don't you? Because the graphics are so good. Yeah. Where you sort of round a corner, or you crest a rise. And then there's this vista spread out before you of or just stuff that just so enticing. And that's what you want to get. That's difficult to achieve when you're just, you know, you're just being your basic GM self mm. and going, um, oh, it's kind of dark and there's some there's some mist in the distance. And, um, and oh, there's a dude on a horse, but he doesn't really look that bothered. It's kind of hard, isn't it? So at least with dungeons, you could say there's a passageway left and right and one of it yeah. smells of garlic and the other one painted green. But wilderness can be difficult to do. Um, and the other difficult thing, which I'd love to hear your opinion on, is because you've got no walls around you, it's very open. And, and you can get, as a GM, prepping adventures in the wilderness, you can get a little bit agoraphobic, can't you? Mm. In that kind of like, oh, God, anything could happen here and it could be coming from any direction. I've got to manage weather and light. And, and all of a sudden, you've got more work to do than you had when you were just plotting out stuff on squares. Mm. How do you do that? Yeah, so one of the things that you've got to think about, or I, I suggest you would like to think about, is that you want to make things interesting. Like the, and this is true. Great for advice, guys. All, all, all manner, <laughs> all manner of your gaming stuff. But like we've discussed, it, I think possibly in the dungeon episode, like just don't have empty rooms or skip past them if yeah. you do. Like there's no point trying to explain all those when there's nothing there. Like, and it's almost the same for the wilderness. That like, I mean, why bother with random encounters? Why not plan them out? I mean, have some random tables to get your imagination going, but it's well worth looking at things for inspiration. You can look at, there's a lot of like survival programs, that I mean, like, you know, Bear Grylls and Nick and the Fred yeah. and stuff like that, uh, which will give you some great ideas. Like, you know, you, you get off on an island and you, you dropped off in some mangrove swamps. Well, you know, watch that for five minutes. You'll mm -hmm. suddenly get like loads of ideas about what it looks like, what it smells like, how difficult an arduous is just to get through. What would happen if an alligator attacked you now, or in a fantasy world, it's a giant alligator or whatever, mm. you know, that can make a really interesting scenario or give people a choice and, you know, or put them on a clock on a skill challenge. Like you've got to get out of this mangrove by this many successes or the black caiman that's the size of a dragon is going to put you down uh, another blaze of the dark clock to kind of like tick it down or anything like that. So mm. don't, you don't have to describe everything that happens as you go along in terms of features, but have some interesting features. So when you go to your next hex or whatever it is, it might be like a really cool waterfall. If you look at any kind of travel program, they always have these kinds of things where people go wandering around mm. and go, here we have the Rainbow Falls or whatever. And they'll just tell you, you know, show you a drone shot or something, there'll be a waterfall coming down and because of all the mist, there's a rainbow and stuff. It's like, brilliant. Well, that's a scene for your role playing game then. And then you can just think about, well, what might be living there? And, you know, what might be living there in a fantasy world, in your setting, whatever it is, mm -hmm. that'd be more interesting than, I don't know, some macaws or something. It's going to be some kind of, I don't know, uh, some kind of like silver-backed serpent that goes up and down. And just just the way the water falls, you can't see. It's virtually invisible. But you've got to climb up that waterfall because that's the way to your next part of your adventure or something like that. So yeah, I, I guess that's that's the generic way to do it, is look at travel programs or other things or, you know, just geography in general. Look at interesting features that will be in there and not like an interesting rock. Like, what is it about the rock that's interesting? Does it look like... The Statue of Liberty half out the sea at the end of Planet of the Apes or whatever. You know, that, mm. why isn't it a half buried statue of someone rather than interesting rock? And is it hollow? Is there a little dungeon in there? Or mm. does something live in it? Or you know, there's there's like thousands of things you can come across. But you just gotta Yeah, I sounded flippant at the start when I said make it interesting. But seriously, I like, just think of if you're gonna have something on the journey, either make it a point of interest or something that people can interact with, or just don't have it. Say it's three days later, and you know at this bit, which does have an interesting feature, so that's why we're going to talk about it. That kind yeah. of thing, I would suggest. Yeah, as well as landscapes, I heartily agree. Would like um, just go to YouTube at this point. Seriously, 
Um, there's some amazing visuals out there, all of which are clippable and use of users resources in your mm -hmm. game. Um, and if you put the silhouette of a dragon over any of that, it looks fantastic. <laughs> the your waterfall, but with the shadow of a dragon going across it, it makes everything very different. Um, and, and speaking of stuff like that, I love a nature documentary. Love yeah. a nature documentary. Who doesn't? For the visuals of the landscapes, but also for the for the wildlife too. Um, I got an adventure hook once from watching about, I can't even remember what the original creature was, but it was something that like coughed up um, a, a beetle of some sort that kind of lived in its throat. And it coughed it up and the beetle rolled off and it went off about its job again, trying to find someone else to jump inside. And then the next adventure, uh, we had a dragon, actually, uh, but the dragon was sort of struggling because it couldn't breathe fire because it had a paladin in there. <laughs> so yeah. it coughed one up and this sort of the thing covered in armour rolled out across the, the pine needle covered floor, that stood up looking very exhausted, put his helmet back on straight and charged back at the dragon to continue the fight. <laughs> and then, you know, the party have got to do something with that because yeah. something is happening. Yeah. So I think with travel, it can sometimes be a bit static. Even though you're moving, nothing's happening in your environment around you. But of course, something's happening all the time. Of course it is. Uh, an adventurer is a very small part of that massive ecosystem, aren't they? Mm. Uh, and, and, I don't mind a random table, but if if the random table just occasionally has it, you see in the distance a thunderstorm start to coalesce. That's not that doesn't fall into the interesting column that you're talking about. What we want is some kind of ankeg or boulette burst out of the ground because you've trodden over the tunnels that keep it young. That kind of yeah. thing. Well, you know, there's um, the lightning strikes the trees, and there's a forest fight now. Yeah, where you were going to camp? What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you see an oasis on the map and people go, oh, well, God, I so we can refill our water skins. Well, it's the only oasis for like miles around. That means lots of dangerous animals are there looking for prey who are coming to fill the water skins up, for example. Exactly. You know, there's, there's tons of stuff like that. That's... Yeah. As we discussed most of the time with our roleplay stuff, we'd give the player stuff to do. So yeah. the trap you can fall into quite easily, and I've done it in the past, is you start describing various vistas that you've seen on YouTube. Or... <laughs> yeah. So, and you're trying to get, and the more you try and explain it, the less interested your players will look. Trust me on this one. So you've got mm -hmm. to provide things for them to do or interact with or choices to make, or you're just talking at them and they want to play the game, not just have someone talking at them. Yeah, gaming tourism. There's better things you're going to give you a tour of the fantasy world than the GM just reading out a massive block of italic text. Yeah, that's not right. Interactivity is key. And, and I think driving drives are key. And dri drives are key in every type of game you ever play. But when you're outdoors, um, We'll keep it fantasy just for the sake of this example. You've got to have a bloody good reason for being outdoors mm. because it's dangerous and everything wants to kill you. Um, and if, if if you get hurt, there's no one there to help. Um, you know, what are you doing out of out of your house, let alone out of your town? So you've got to have drives, and those drives have got to keep things pushing forward. I love the idea of journeys. I, I really I get a big kick out of those things and, and games that do a decent kind of travel subsystems, I'm all about. Because if you aren't looking for that next horizon or trying to get somewhere or have it against the clock, as you suggest, then you are literally just sitting in pretty scenery. Mm. Um, and then for that, you might as well be in a dungeon room having yeah. a long rest at that point. Yeah. So one of the subsystems that you alluded to earlier is the One Ring. Yeah, which I've never played. So I wouldn't mind a, a little rundown on what makes the Journeys rule so good, actually. Yeah, well, we should do a one-shot for that. There's a, a little channel we're going to be doing in a bit that will help people with this. But yes, enough of the teasers. <laughs> in the first edition, it had a travel system where depending on the terrain and where you were going and how dangerous it was and what it was and that sort of thing, it'd be more difficult to make your travel rolls. You might become more exhausted uh, and then hazards might happen along the way, which was fine. But as we discussed with uh, Francesco Nefatello when we had him on the cast, what tended to happen was that you were kind of disappointed if hazards didn't happen. Because you know, if you do really well, then you never did encounter anything. Then you got to your other side of the journey and went, oh, well, I was all right. <laughs> Didn't really feel like much had happened. Uh, so the new system's got more of there are things that happen along the way, and they may be good or bad depending on how your characters have done in their journey. Uh, so that's quite useful. And it might be you know uh, stumbling across a hunting party who are chasing a boar, and you only find out about it when an arrow whistles past your head. Mm. And you know, are, are the people you're friendly with, or are the immediately angry because you got in the way or scared the animal off or something and, and things like that. So um, there are ventures and the stuff they write for that. I've got good ideas of uh, things that would happen when you're wandering about the place. 
And depending on which path you choose, because you've kind of got, like I said, these different areas of life and shared and where's easier and where's not, and where will be more quick, but more dangerous. Uh, you've got some choice there for the players to kind of plan their journey ahead as well. You might get a bit of that um, Lord of the Rings thing where they decide they're going over the mountains, but partway through, go, do you know what? This is a terrible mm-hmm. idea. We don't like this. <laughs> what can we go back and do something else? And, and I think particularly the one ring that works because it's emulation the genre, which as mm-hmm. we discussed, Tolkien did a lot of wandering around the place. And, and seeing weird and wonderful things. Mm. So yes, definitely worth looking at. And it does it does a bit of a tritting the resources of the characters as well. So you kind of turn up to the dungeon or the wherever the adventure is when you get to the side of it, and you will have some level of fatigue or exhaustion or weariness or be miserable or various other conditions you might have. But that I think, as long as you can buy into it, I think he does a good job of saying like, well, you have travelled for like two hundred miles through Merkwood mm-hmm. and round Erebor and stuff. Like you probably aren't at your best now when a band of orcs jumps out of the mountains or wherever you are. So uh, there's a bit bit of a game aspect to it, which I think helps players get a handle on it a bit more. It's not just trying to describe how miserable Merkwood is for, Mm -hmm. you know, an hour, which nobody wants to hear about. It provides cool things that might happen on the way. I remember one one particular one, mild spoilers, but it's from first edition is uh, there's like an old well, which sounds perfectly fine. It sounds like probably like your interesting rocks that you mentioned before, a peculiar rock or whatever it was, but the subtentical monster down there. So when you go like, a bit like the thing that's in the thing, you know, that takes build the pony. Yeah. Someone goes over to put the bucket down the well and suddenly like you're trying to drag him back out. You've got all of his boots as he's halfway down the well. Otherwise there's things trying to pull him down to eat him and stuff. And you just got a massively exciting uh, little encounter that you can have. Mm. And then you realize you're still only halfway through. Like what else is there down this road that you've got to go through? But you're as far in now as you are to go back, so you might as well keep going. You know, that, yeah. that just gives you the excitement. or the it, it definitely gives you the feeling of the danger of going through Mirkwood rather than just someone keep going, oh, it's dark and scary, and you're hearing all you spoke, you're looking for nothing there. That's There's only so many times you can do that before the players yeah. get bored. No, I, I, I really need to play that because it's got a reputation for having fantastic ways of, of emulating that kind of piece. And um, Free League do the one ring now, don't they? We've had... That's right, yeah, with Francesco still. But yeah. We've had Francesco on talking about that. And the free league games often have uh, some kind of exploratory nature to them. I'm, I'm a fan of free league games. And um, I think Monster, Mutant Year Zero, uh, which is the first one I picked up, and many of us will be in that position as well, that had a really sort of interesting set of rules for exploring the wilds, um, heading out into what they call the zone. So it's a post-apocalyptic game with loads of mutations and what have you. Um and that's done on a big grid, and there's oh, some really cool maps that came with my copy of Mutant Year Zero, what, like a, a mostly flooded London hundreds of years in the future. Or yeah. Manhattan is turned into what looks like current-day Venice. It's uh, it's just cool, you know, and when you find like the big wheel in London, and it, that's obviously the Millennium Eye, uh, London Eye, um, I think they call it these days, um, and it just takes you back to all that Planet of the Ape stuff, that, that seeing things in weird juxtapositions and kind of nostalgic and, and sinister all at the same time. Yeah. Um I I don't think, to be completely clear, it's it's not a it's not a travel system that I go running back to at any time. I don't think it's it didn't really stack up the way that I imagined it would do. And I think with those there's a couple of those games I want to talk about Forbidden Lands a little bit because I think that's tried to do that exploration thing to bring back the hex crawl into with modern mechanics. But you've got this kind of this pull between base building, certainly in Mutant Year Zero, you want to work on your arc and make sure that you've got enough to eat yeah. and exploration. And in Forbidden Lands, which is another free league game, and, and to be fair, it's an old school game with a new lick of paint on it. You've got all of this stuff about building a stronghold um, and then all of this stuff about filling in the blank bits of the map. And it's quite difficult to do both of those at the same time. <laughs> Arguably, you can't do it at all that way, but... yeah. Certainly, Forbidden Lands is really, really brutal. It's probably quite realistic, as we were talking about before with camping, but you set out at night and you haven't quite got enough torches, you will soon learn the error of your ways. Mm. Um, and you are making an awful lot of rolls, most of which are stacked against you. And it doesn't take very many of them to go wrong before you, you're worse off than you would have been in a dungeon with a bunch of orcs, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, mosquitoes, darkness, and cold will get you before the bunk bears do. Yes, yeah, it's not for me. It's fair no. to play that game because it is too uh, focused on the brutalism. I would suggest so a bit like Torchbearer and stuff like that. It's kind of made a real game of the nuts and bolts of it, uh, and it's probably 
too much into the logistics. Yeah, it's a bit too punishing for me as well, actually, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I've not played it yet, but I've looked at the beta of The Walking Dead, and that's got a similar thing to Mutant Year Zero in that you've got a map of an area and then there's interesting features on it. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really journeying, as you were saying, about your other game, but I think that in itself, um, what am I trying to say? It's kind of got that uh, sandboxy feel, which a lot of things are doing these days, rather mm -hmm. than the gym having a plot in mind, so you have to go to the place where he's told you to go, or the wizard in the pub told you. You know, you have to go to this tower for this thing. Uh, having a variety of things on there you could go and look at, I think makes it a bit more interesting as well. If someone's further away and it's hard to get there, or, you know, it drains your resources more, you, you have to think about, do I want to do that or not? Mm. And, but that's a choice for the players. Like, you know, as a GM, you don't have to be precious about which way they go or what they do. You can leave it up to them. And I like the legacy aspect of, you know, putting stickers on a map or a drawing on a map yeah. to give the players so they can start filling in things that are there that they might not know about initially. So I do like that aspect. Uh, and it's got a little thing around. There's a, a few different mechanics they've added. They're all quite simple, but I like the sound of them. As I say, I've not played it yet, so our mm -hmm. listeners will have to take it with a pinch of salt. But I like the one where you kind of meet a new sector or zone or whatever they call them, and your scout's got to make a roll. And if you fail it, it means that if there's something there, it's going to ambush you rather than you see it first. Right. Yeah. And that kind of stuff. So it's, it just gives it gives someone the role when someone wants to be the sneaky scout or the whoever, then they've got a job to do. And if they don't do it, there's a mechanical effect that'll come in later. Because mm. they don't see the horde of walkers actually there, so, you know, suddenly stumble into them like you do in the TV show or something. Mm -hmm. So, like little mechanics like that that help reinforce the the story of what you're doing, rather than you know make the endless perception rolls to see if you see the thing that's three miles away or yeah. not and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I've I've rant about it now. Now I've angered myself by mentioning it, but that I guess that's that's another thing we could talk about in terms of how do you solve this problem? Is you know if you're going to the Isle of Dren on a ship. And the random encounter is there's another ship coming to get you or something. Like, why are you asking for a perception roll if it's on the horizon? It's going to take six hours to catch up with you or something. You know, there's all, there's all sort of things like, what do you do? I don't know the answer for this, but like asking for perception rolls is things that like we, we complain about a lot anyway, and we all do it. But how do you do it in the wilderness when there is a lot more space and you've got time to react? If it's something's around the corner of the dungeon and do you hear the orc or not? Like, mm -hmm. there's an immediacy to it. Yes. But if you're on, I don't know, wide open plains that are six miles wide, then you know what are you making a perception roll for, or what? How do you approach having encounters and the fact mm -hmm. that players might just run off in the other direction or circle them widely or something like that? I guess. Yeah, classically the answer to that is the maker getting lost roll, isn't it? That's the mm. the punishment for making an immediate quick change of plans is that you you literally jump off the road, don't you, and go and hide in the bushes, and then you can't find your way back. Oh, that's okay. That's that's sort of simple and and uh, you know. But I think I I think I might know the answer to this one, guys. Oh, good. <laughs> and I think in in probably only a few days ago we were playing a game that I was running and I got it wrong. And on reflection, I think it might actually have the answer to what you were talking about. So we were playing Starforge the other night, weren't we? Mm -hmm. Really enjoying our game. And um, <laughs> we often laugh about the first role in the game being a perception role. That certainly wasn't the case in this scenario. Um, but later on, that was a role that came up. One of the characters wanted to look off through their binoculars at a, uh, a settlement in the distance that had things flying above it to check it out. So certainly, you know, not being pressed to go in there and engage with it, could turn around, go back, you know, free will. And I think I called for what is basically a gather information role, which is perception role by any other names. I've been thinking about it a lot because I do that. And I think instead I should have gone with another move and it will have um, an analogous move in almost every game you want to play these days. It should have been to set up an advantage. Yeah. It should have rolled secure an mm -hmm. advantage because by doing your observation, what you're trying to do really is literally get yourself an advantage, see how many they are, what the guard patrols are like at a distance. Um, is that herd of wildebeest coming towards us or are they just going to go by? You're really just trying to give yourself a little boost aren't you so that you can make a, a more informed decision and that's what it should be your perception role if that's what it is really try and look at that as is that going to fall forward into something yeah so is it going to make your subsequent roles or your subsequent decisions easier or harder for you to try to accomplish and i think if you do it that way then people have to interact with the environment so 
your example of what was it? Are these wolves going to come this way, or are they? Can we just hide? Time to start securing advantages, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that might be from just your knowledge, that sort of like perception of what I might call perception of inside your head. <laughs> can I make a perceived role for what I know? <laughs> can I find out what I know? <laughs> what do I know about wolves? Oh, you better roll to see what you know. What? It is kind of weird. Those two things are slightly odd. <laughs> and I, I think Powered by the Apocalypse style games do that. Re- they do that really well with certain yeah. realities and what have you. But it is, it is a bit more. Players have got, or adventurers, I would say, do seem to have far more options when you're outdoors simply because they can normally go off in any direction they want. You can't funnel them particularly well. Not that you should be trying to do that. Obviously, there's stuff like uh, whitewater rapids and crevasses that can't be crossed and volcanoes and so on. Um, but, yeah, you've got to let people wonder where they want. But you, but the, the trick I've, I've always found is you've got to give people, you've got to give them the incentive to want to travel. Mm-hmm. so that could be an incentive to run away from something or it could be which you can't do in a dungeon very easily is you can climb a tree and have a look so if you can see what's two hexes away by getting to high ground and making that kind of informed decision then players love that sort of stuff like i think you know your deathmatch island games that you've been running for us where it's like well do we go up there because that's that's got restricted marked on the map or from there we might be able to see something different so maybe we should go there but actually, if we go down to the coast, there might be a boat that we can get. And we'll have to assume there's another harbour up there. And as long as those things are happening in character, a map and the great outdoors, all of that information can be really good grist to the mill. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to be more flexible as a GM, don't you? A lot more flexible as a GM and mm. more proactive as a player to so not just end up saying, we go north until we hit something. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's worth like seeding those ideas as well. So when you're traveling somewhere and you stop at a, a village or whatever the night, they might tell you about the horrible time they're having manticores at the minute. Mm. They keep attacking all the sheep or whatever it is. Or, you know, that then gives them an opportunity. Like, well, do you, do you want to help the village out? Do you want to go and hunt these things down or try and get them to go away? Or are you going to actually skirt that entire forest because it sounds mm. super dangerous? You're going to need something else instead. Or you meet a merchant on the way who's been attacked by something or... You know, he's searching for the bandits. There's a posse or something searching for bandits. He's robbed mm. a caravan or something. And you can provide encounters that aren't a wandering monster, I guess is the thing I'm supposed to say, that, that then tell yeah. you about other features that are around and give people reasons to go to other hexes or other locations. Yeah. Uh, and you can also think about, like, this is this is where the realism thing can come in where I think it's helpful. Is stuff like, is there a, if there is high ground that has a commanding view of the valley, somebody's probably occupying that. Because yes. they want to command each other, they? they want someone looking down on them. So who's that, and why they're there? Are they going to be friendly to the characters or not? Mm-hmm. Or do they want something from them? Or is there a toll? Or you know, the, the, you can do the usual thing of just layer on as many different things as you want. But it's worth having as you go through hexes or you know whatever your travel unit is more clues as to the next bits of it. So then you're kind of like laying out track and uh, giving a richness, so it feels yes. like a living wilderness that you're walking through, and not just a set of. Is it plains or is it marsh or is it forest kind of boxes on a map? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, we've, we've spoken, we sort of kept it quite medieval mm. uh, for most of our talk so far, with a slight allusion to Starforge there. Other genres, other games. I mean, science fiction has space, usually, uh, or it has planets to explore, Star trek style Um, In fact, the, the, the premise of Star Trek is largely an exploration one, isn't it? The original series, at least. Yeah. So... Um, is there a different set of techniques or a different set of pitfalls with space and interplanetary exploration? Or can we learn the lessons of those early D&D adventures and not make the same mistakes when we're in our spaceships these days? There's some opportunity. You've kind of got a weird thing, haven't you? If you've got your spaceship, you've kind of got your home base and you're taking it with you. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so wherever you go, you can always fall back to your base <laughs> with all your stuff on. Yeah, the inn <laughs> is following you around, isn't it? <laughs> and you can take your base and run off with it somewhere else if you want to. Uh, yeah, it's tough is, is that because um, of scope and scale. So what quite happens in sci-fi games is you have like the ice planet or the desert planet or whatever. Yeah. They, they like become really narrow focused because as a, as a GM to try and like lay out an entirely rich, full world every time the players decide they're going over here now for the ne- through the next wormhole. I mean, like it's just too hard. Mm. to be able to relate to players at the table like new and interesting things in a lot of rich detail. Mm. 
the, the one that I can think of, the game, it's a kind of fake best game, I think, Diaspora. Yes, it is. Or however you want to pronounce it. I know people call it Diaspora or various other things, but uh, that sort of sets it up as having six worlds and then there's links between them, so you can only go from certain ones to certain other ones. So again, it's kind of like restricting the scope, I think, is what you have to do a little mm-hmm. bit with sci-fi to make it... If you play Star Trek, for example, just to pick a sector that you're in or you know a part of space that's like your area that you get to yeah. look around in or something like that, because otherwise you you just... Everything becomes too woolly. Uh, mm. But the other good thing that they do, which which fades us quite a lot, is each of the worlds then will have three tags, which just give you your starting points. So and then you might have, I don't know, a government on there, and they might have three tags for what form of government it is on the planet or things like that. So that's kind of the way to do it. But I think for a lot of sci-fi, you're relying on players to fill in some of the detail for you. Mm-hmm. Because unlike fantasy, which we've discussed, like if, some, if it's an orc with a sword, people have got an idea in the head, and they might slightly vary but you've got the idea of some bestial kind of humanoid who wants to hurt you with his sword. If you go to a planet and it's an Anulamog or something, it's like, well, what do they look like? What's the level of technology? Are they hostile? Can they speak our language? Like, There's, there's suddenly like a thousand questions every time you do anything in science fiction that is just hard to get a grip of. So I think Star Forge does a good job as well, uh, which we mentioned in terms of like narrowing the scope about whether there's faster than light travel and how many worlds there are and what the kind of setup is and you know, is there an international government? Mm. I just think, yeah, with, with sci-fi more than anything, you've kind of got to, like, nail down a lot of the things to pen things in almost. Like, you know, you've got to limit imagination to a certain extent because otherwise people just can't get a grip on what they're doing. Yeah. And you've got to a new world, and it's like, well, is there a starport? Do we land on planet or spin around it? Does someone come and speak to us? Are we allowed? Do we get interdicted? There's just so many questions every time you play a sci-fi game. You just have to kind of frame everything in such a way that gives everybody some chance of getting a, the same sort of movie playing in the head when you do it, I guess, is what I'd say. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. And um, anything off the beaten path in a sci-fi game is up for discussion, isn't it? So the three-tag idea from the old fake games is wonderful because if you land your ship on a planet, you're going to ask the ship's log, like, what or the ship's computer, what do we know about this? And, and no player wants to be handed a source book for that. Yeah. Um, even though you might have that kind of access to knowledge, what you want is something really brief but evocative. And that's why we have ice worlds, I suppose, isn't it? Or, um, yeah. Desert worlds is just to sort of, like, limit the scope of, of what it's going to be likely to be down there. And to be fair to it, like, good old Traveller, with its little hexadecimal world codes, that was quite an evocative way of doing it. Like, how much water is there? What's the law level like? What's the tech level like? Yeah. It was always a bit dry and scientific because it was traveller and, you know, not, not exactly adventure-based. Um, but you could take a lot from those sort of things. So that sort of short coding is really helpful, I think. And it has to be, doesn't it? Yeah. It absolutely has to be because I've God knows how many science fiction novels I've read where I'm 100 pages in I still don't actually know what's going on from a mm. world-building perspective. Especially if there's like, a, because all the language is different as well. Um, none of those words have ever been spoken out loud. And you might have various empires against yes. each other. And they might not be on one world or they might be on two ends of a solar system. or And, and you just get hard to get your head around it, really. Yeah. And that's with the benefit of having a really clever author lay it all out for you. Yeah. So, you know, in a game, those kind of things can, can really unsettle you if you're outside in a sci-fi game and two players think it means one thing and another play, two players think it's a different thing, and, and then that kind of conflict can really derail stuff. And, and the poor old GM is probably having to scratch about to try and decide what a city world looks like. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's tough to make journeys exciting if you're you know, just going through the warp, or whatever it might be, or fast mm. light travel or something, or even if you're not even, you know, alien-style cryotubes. tubes or something like that. The journey itself is pretty dull yeah. in terms of how, the sort of things you can say in a sci-fi game. The only sort of like a section I can think of, which you can't do a lot, but it was in a, a 40k style game. I think we used a different system in the end or the changes. Uh, but we we're going through the war and we were in mm-hmm. pure guard going to a planet to find something and something got in. And we ended up, you know, we were walking up along with a hundred other men because like a demon had got in, a warp demon somehow got into the ship and that made the journey exciting, but it wasn't really the journey. It was the, it was an encounter-based thing. And similarly, in uh, like traveler games, I've had where we were supposed to be taking some mining parts to these guys on a, on a sort of asteroid. So we did we did that, and then they gave us some things back, which turned out to be guns. And we're like, oh, we thought these were machine parts. 
<laughs> then another point would be paired with, with ore from the miners or something, and then the customer vessels checked it. There was a dead body in one of the barrels and the stuff like that. So a lot of it was the the consequences of places we've been and we went somewhere else, and we 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 didn't have. You couldn't go back when there's repercussions. You can't just go, oh, it's that guy in the, you know, the last village that gave us that mission. He's all right. We'll go and punish him now. It's all very much because of the distances involved. Yes. We've now got to deal with the situation. And I guess another one that was interesting, which because there's so many different worlds and you can keep moving around, is we were we got locked up for the the whole murder thing that did, we didn't murder him on. <laughs> but then there was, um, there was a planetary invasion and the prison was hit with mess on cannons and stuff, so the walls like came down around us and stuff, and we could escape. But there's then like the the invaders thought we were part of the local population trying to kill us and all put in mm-hmm. camps and stuff. But that's the sort of thing you can do when you play on that scale. You can trash a whole world with an inversion, and the players yeah. go off, and, and now we're in a different world again. But yeah, in terms of our wilderness and journey discussion, I think sci-fi is just a bit of a struggle to have enough stuff to do. Yeah, and I wonder if that, that might be the reason why sci-fi isn't has, has never has always been second fiddle to fantasy. It just gives you the option of if you're going to do the wilderness we talked about before, but on a planet, you can make it even more weird and wonderful. So yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be you know the waterfalls might flow upwards and they might be made of sulfur or something. I don't know. You can go absolutely crazy and hug wild with all kinds of weird and wonderful things that happen on alien planets. So that gives you a scope to really go outside the box with what might be happening. So. That's far future, tricky at times, but exotic. Uh, the distant past, if that's what we want to call anything fantasy. Uh, modern day stuff, mate. Um, driving around in cars on freeways, uh, going for long walks in the Lake District, uh, getting lost up Everest. <laughs> People say Earth is always the most interesting setting you can have. And certainly our early advice to like watch nature documentaries and travel shows would, would seem to back that up. I think there's... Um, there's quite a lot of untapped stuff about exploration in modern games. And and do you often see that trope? It's become a trope, I think, probably a meme now, whatever the kids are calling it, of the red burning line, the Indiana Jones thing across yeah. the map. Yeah. Where you just get from one place to another because let's just cut to the action. Yes. But there's an awful lot of really good fiction and media, geek media even, about moving around, uh, about being outdoors, about you know getting lost in places and survival stuff. Uh, have you ever managed to get um, the great outdoors to be interesting in your horror games that you like so much, for example? Well, it is a feature I've noticed, certainly with a lot of con games in the UK with Call of Cthulhu, is a way of making those games interesting that a lot of people have taken up is mm-hmm. to set it somewhere at a different time and place yeah. around the world. So it might be set in Africa in, I guess, sort of 1950s, 60s, kind of the Wild Goose area when there's lots of ex-British military uh, mercenaries, basically. Is the word yeah. but, uh, they weren't just mercenaries. They were sent to, like, topple governments and things like that. Uh, and you can set it in that kind of environment. It's different than 1920s, you know, Boston or New England or wherever you want to be, mm. that kind of thing. So journeying around it, I don't know that it gives you much at all, but it's just putting it in a different – it's giving everything a different flavour, isn't it? A different dressing – and if you're unfamiliar with that setting, then it adds to the the tapestry of the game. Uh, hence, we often have a fascination with, I don't know, like feudal Japan or other things like that. Like if it's not part of your culture, then other cultures can provide lots of interesting things. Yeah. That you that you might not, you know, certainly at my school, we didn't get to read much beyond, you know, the Industrial Revolution and crop rotation. Mm. There's so many different histories and backgrounds and places that I didn't even know about that now would be like great to explore just as a part of you of uh, expanding your knowledge apart from anything else and adding something different to the game. So I guess that's how you do it. Journeying somewhere though, or wilderness, I don't know. It's tough to make it's tough to make it interesting. Those survival programs I was talking about, there's a lot in there about when they give people very few things, like they've got a five-star mm. in a pot and told to live for three weeks out in might be Africa, it might be Ecuador, it could be wherever. Yeah. And it's tough, but it's not even those aren't very interesting, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> they're out for a 20 day, day challenge. It'll go like, it'll go from like day 10 to day 14 and they've caught a frog. And it's like, okay. So it's like, you know, there's four days of that where nothing happened. Like, yeah. literally nothing yeah, yeah, yeah. happened, you know. And then catching a frog was the feature. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how you would do a contemporary travel thing and make it interesting unless you've got mechanics like the One Ring, for example. Or you have, you know, your game is about, uh, the arduous tracks you've got to make in inhospitable environments. 
that you could perhaps put yes. some mechanics around it and make it interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear some comments from our audience about this because I, I have a feeling we're probably missing out on loads of stuff. I mean, Call of Cthulhu is is kind of is renowned for its travel scenarios, horror on the Orient Express, that kind of thing. And I've certainly travelled the world with Call of Cthulhu more than I've done in real life. I've been to Australia and other planets too, but um, but they are all set inside like carriages, aren't they? Or in yeah. hot air balloons or very small places, Agatha Christie style locked box mysteries, locked room mysteries. Yeah. The, the actual, you know, walker in the wastes. And uh, I am thinking of the big Antarctic campaign, which I now can't recall what it's called. Mountain of Madness. That must be the one. Uh, I mate Mark had it, and he went all in. This is way pre-Kickstarter or anything else like that. But he spent as much money as he could so that he could get the badge that you could sew onto your Parker jacket yeah, yeah. that said that you'd been on that expedition. But I flicked through his book, and I think the first 100 pages were all about resource management. It was, it was you know, thorough. Should we say thorough? Yes. <laughs> Feeding the huskies, etc. Um, and there was a lot of stuff about how the cold is the most frightening thing and so on. So good intentions, whether that worked or not, I, I don't know. And I, I, to be honest, I doubt it did with the Call of Duty rule set back then. I doubt it did, really. <laughs> I'm pretty um, sure I remember there's one part of that campaign where if you fail your piloting roll, then you, the plane crashes and you die the mountains. There you are. There you are. Uh, <laughs> congratulations, everyone. <laughs> but I think there, there probably is something in there. There is probably there's probably a role-playing game that I don't know about, which is all about that kind of race around the world thing you see on the BBC, you know, that backpacking and um, and travel for the sake of it, as opposed to travel just being the interstitial bits between what is considered to be the fun. Yes. Yeah, we did do... Um... With my little Thursday group, we'd, we'd done a bit of the Terra Australis thing mm-hmm. for Gold Cthulhu. And that had, it was more about the restrictions things I was talking about, I guess. So we were going, we had to go out to this place. I'll try not to reveal too many spoilers for people or anything, but you had to kind of go out in the outback, really. There was like a, a couple of mining concerns that were out in the desert, realistically. So like we could get so far, we had to fly to a certain place, and the trail only went so far. And then we knew different locations. And it was more about, We've got a time constraint and get into these various places. You can only leave so many of them within the time you got, and we kind of had to mm. plan that out. So it became not about the journey per se, but it was just another way of adding that ticking clock to you as players to kind of go, well, where are you going to go? And if you're going out there, that's proper out in the bush. Yeah. And if you haven't got a guide, then you might struggle. And if, if something goes wrong, like what are the chances? Then, then mm. you're really going to be in trouble. So that 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 gave an extra frisson to the kind of like the sort of shopping list thing you do where you're like, well, what kit are we taking and what, what do we really need to take? Do we really need to take this telescope? It's like, yeah, well, I don't know. The clues we've got are all about astronomy, so we need to take a massive telescope with us. And it's like, suddenly, suddenly I, there was like all kinds of... I love of the logist- narrow end. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of logistical things that kind of suddenly comes into the game that you wouldn't have thought about. But that that fits within the oeuvre of the game. So we didn't mind it. Uh, so I guess a lot of the time it just depends on what what's going to make it interesting for you. Going to a difficult to live in place and have very spaced out things that you need to look at, but you've only got so much time. Mm. It, again, it's that narrowing down so that players have got choices and something, some decisions to make makes it a bit more interesting than the, you know, an hour of logistics about how you're going to feed yeah. your huskies or whatever it is. Okay. Well, we've, we've traveled quite a lot on this journey so far. Clever, huh? And um, so far we've not mentioned uh, the montage rules which are, you know, one of those cool bits of tech that you, I, and our close associates and good friends of the show pretty much wedge into every game we ever play. Standard. The montage rules, I think we've probably discussed them before. We'll do it quickly now because it doesn't take very long. They really add a loads and loads and loads of spice to any kind of overland expedition or anything you just want to you wanna do like a, a little highlights reel of. So in a movie, it would be like your training sequence for Rocky or um, that bit where the Fellowship are marching across the mountains. And the idea is that there's not going to be any dice rolling in this. Um, the GM's going to set an obstacle or a challenge, something like, you know, you're you're on the first day and uh, as you move through the wilderness, so there's a giant swamp in front of you. What do you do? And then one player will pick up that baton and say how it's resolved. And it will just be, it will be that. It will be like, a, you know, we managed to make some some. Um, some rafts out of some reeds. It takes us ages and we get covered in in mosquito bites. In fact, actually, one of those mosquito bites gets infected because the player also then thinks up the next challenge. Mm-hmm. And then another player picks up that challenge, the solution to it, and a further challenge. 
And you go around as much as you want to. It doesn't have to be everyone. It's a bit of a talking stick kind of thing, I suppose, isn't it? It's ideal if you go all the way around your group and it comes back to the GM. And every time we've done that, with no dice rolling at all, no matter what the game, no matter what the genre, it's always been an absolute delight. And just those tiny little bits of everyone gets to be the GM for two minutes colours in the world beautifully. And it can be as dangerous as you want. I mean, I suppose you could narrate and then, you know, everybody breaks their legs and that could be the next challenge. But people generally, they're quite cruel to themselves, aren't they? Mm. But but not fatal. Yes. And I, I, just, I really like the way it works. It's from 13th Age, but it's not in the core book. It will be in the next edition. It's, um, I, I think, I want to say it's Gareth Ryder, Hanrahan's invention. And then it came out of an expansion book. But I think he might have written down something he'd seen on the internet that a player had been doing. Yeah. So yeah. sorry about the accreditation for this, but it's a brilliant idea. Um, and if you don't know it, you can you can drop it into whatever you're playing tomorrow. Yeah, and you can you can find it on the Palgrain blog, I think it is. There's, mm. You know, if you just Google montages and Palgrain, you'll find a an article which talks about it. Yes, yeah, good, and it gives it can give the GM decent ideas about things to incorporate as well. So I think in our thirtieth version grant that I've been doing on Tuesday with a good friend of the show, Guy from the Burn After Rain blog. Um, I, I can't remember what it was we were doing, but for some reason I brought in elves because we happened to be walking through a, mm-hmm. a forest. So I mentioned the Elder Army and how my troll found them particularly delicious. And then out of that, from the following scenes, like this whole thing came up about the elves and how they were all frightened of trolls and blah, 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 blah. But that all really come because we had a montage and I have introduced them. We hadn't got anywhere in these gem notes about having the Elder Army in our 30th Days campaign, but mm. you know, it's, it's an opportunity for players to sort of flag stuff that they find interesting so the gem can then bring it in later on and reincorporate it. So... Well worth doing, and it's it's really quick as well. And uh, another good friend of the show from the Grognar Files podcast, our good friend Dirk the Dice, he did it in again in Grantha actually. It was Snake Pipe Hollow, and he kind of wanted to do the dungeon, but not do the dungeon if you know what I mean. So yeah. he, he did each room of six rooms of the dungeon as a montage. So like, okay, you're in the Wolf Slayer. How do you get? You know, what do you do about it? Lots of wolves. How do you get through it? And they just told us what the next room was called, so the next person came up with a simple challenge that was related to the room name. But there, there you go, you you bushed through what could have been quite a tedious dungeon crawl quite quickly and got to the end, boss, like really fast. Mm. So yeah, you, you can use it in a variety of different ways. It doesn't have to be just a journey. It could be going through a dungeon or a bunch of other things. It could be uh, your preparation for a heist. It could be all kinds of a negotiation. It could be all kinds of things. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a good little... It's going to do a piece of gaming tech, generally speaking. And it, and it does a good job of compressing that kind of stuff that otherwise you just run the risk of it just becoming a bit tedious, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it is for overland journeys, which then again goes... We seem to be saying this quite a lot, though, that sort of big travel scenes and big overland journeys, the best thing you can do with them is make them as compact as possible and get to the good stuff. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm not sure sits right with me, even though I may have been advocating for that over the course of the last hour. I really like being on wilderness, uh, outdoorsy adventures. And, and as I said right at the top of the show, I think they may be the default. I mean, it's a nice little game to play with yourself. Like, as you play a lot of conventions, a lot of games, a lot of different ways, you know, how many of them are outdoors and outside of civilization and outside of one of those set pieces like a railway carriage or a dungeon? It feels to me like it's quite often the case that you've kind of got to go somewhere. Um, and that will be genre dependent. One of the ones we haven't mentioned yet is like the Wild West, which... You know, I think given the history of our hobby is written by Americans largely, their Wild West was our Victorian era. Mm. So for, for us, when we go back about 100 years or whatever, we're thinking of steam trains, and you can get plenty of that in the Wild West too, but there's a big kind of horse culture, isn't there, and wide open landscapes and frontiersmen, that kind of thing. And um, when we played Deadlands together as well, I've really enjoyed like you know being around a campfire at night and listening to the coyotes and realising that some of them are probably undead because it's your game. <laughs> the Wasted West is is and post-apocalypse type places are good for exploration, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, post-epoch, certainly. Uh, the hell yeah. on earth is Which like is that. a Western, but, isn't it? Yeah, yeah effectively. Yes. Uh, and, well, as you know, that's one of my old favourites is um, you know ruins of stuff or things, mm. things that used to be a thing, but now something else. I, I love all that things. <laughs> an, an old oil rig that's now a massive tower because the sea's all yeah. dried up or something. That's cool AF as the kids would say yeah ace I, I guess the, the other thing you can add to it thinking of Radstorm and the things I'm talking about but it's, <laughs> is, is the weather that's that's how you can make yeah. your travel a bit more interesting is is what you know uh, certainly if you're going somewhere and coming back again 
it's you know at one point it's an easy affordable river but then there's been a massive thunderstorm that you saw in the background because this is Australia and now when you come back it's a raging torrent and how are you going to get your horses across how are you going to swim what are you going to do now you have to go to that dangerous place that you didn't want to go to on the way here that you circled around because that's the only way across the river or whatever it might be um you know the pitter patter of rain upon armor or the stinking heat that's making it go on mildewed around the collar or something like that. There's all kinds of bits of text you can have, I guess, with travel. If you're doing things like weather and nature and mm-hmm. stuff that might be out there that just isn't, like I say, non-lethal, but adds a bit of tapestry. Yeah. Yeah, it's the textural stuff, isn't it? And and that's that's advice that is generally applicable, but in a dungeon you can get away with after 10 minutes not describing the walls and the doors anymore because yeah, it right. doesn't matter too much. But if you, if you use the same GMing technique in your outdoors environment, I think you're going to end up playing werewolf adventures where everything's just kind of gray (laughs) or you go to you know any of the actually that's that's one that's a thing worth mentioning i knew there was something else all of those games that have that kind of barrier between our world and the next all of those games that say like you do cross the veil or you go to a a fairy laylands and then everything is slightly at odds with normality and everything's slightly weirder how come so often in those games things get immeasurably duller when you go to these exotic places. Because <laughs> surely that's supposed to be like, you know, your Planescapes or... Yeah. Or, or any of the White Wolf games have got it, haven't they? And Wraith was brilliant for it. And, you know, just seeing everything through ghost vision should be amazing. But actually, it just sort of saps the life out of you. I think you've got to be a very good GM to put a layer of reality over the top of the one that's hard to describe in the first place. Yeah, well, you need to think about it in advance. I'm thinking about why is it different? And again, why is it interesting? And I'll keep harping on about that, but like, don't just describe it as the same, but kind of great. That's, that's just not interesting. So what, what's different about it? That is notable. Because, I, well, I mean, Stranger Things has got a lot to answer for, hasn't it? Can it has yes. to be upside down? And it's all the same, but there's like ropey vines everywhere. And it's a bit darker. It's like, well, <laughs> great. I mean, work for the TV show a bit, but you can't keep doing that in your fantasy again, can you? Apparently they can keep doing that. I've missed four seasons. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. You, you've got to plan it in advance, I think. It's hard to come on the fly and keep it logically consistent when you start yeah. talking about it and make it more interesting. But it's definitely worth looking at some of like the old 1950s pulpy sci-fi novels and things like that. There's a mm-hmm. bunch of them that are only, I don't know, 150 pages, no more than 200 pages, mm-hmm. and they've got wacky alien worlds in and stuff that will give you like tons of ideas about uh, how everything's cuboid in, this, in the world that you go through to or something else. So there's... Uh, like a lens flare over everything or something or you know just the way the colour hurts your ears or something you know you can, you can say weird things that make it sound odd which can help you yeah and the the other way that, that I would go for that my recommendation my strong recommendation be if you're playing D&D or anything like that get hold of their planar books um, I love the planar stuff I hate the planes it's a bit weird really but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll justify myself in a minute so you've got stuff like the fairy realm or the undead realm or the the place where the elves go to die, which is like this beautiful land in the West. Um, so you've got all of these things. And you've got like a, the, the sort of deadly places like Pandemonium, which are just made out of like boreholes in rock, which winds blow through and they, the sounds of them can make you mad. These locations are epic. and that's uh, But they're, they're usually set up to be like high level locations. Well, border dash to that. Take those locations and make them your normal world. So there's yeah. a bit in like in D and D, the Feywild, where the elves live. I always remember this description. There's like a lake there, and the lake is so beautiful that there's loads of mortals standing around the edge of it who are on their knees because they're starving to death because they can't take their eyes away from it. Mm. They literally cannot move away from the stunning beauty that it is. And you know, and there's like mosquitoes the size of HGV trucks. Um, and dragonflies with riders on them. And it's all really, really good. And it's supposed to be, you know, another place you can go to from your own world. Well, why not take that back into the actual and make that this world? Make that the world. Yeah. Knock around on that because it's a fantasy game. And yeah. if you're going to have like another layer of reality, just pull that forward to be the actual reality. Play in there. That Wraith game we were talking, I mentioned earlier, you've, you've got the idea of a for those who don't know, 90s game, you get to be a ghost, essentially, and you get to haunt people. Except you don't, because after a while, you stop mucking about in the mortal world and, you know, writing your name in the condensation on the shower curtain, and you go to, like, the Deathlands, which is just brilliant for, like, mad stuff. 
to do and have done to you. So you don't really hang around in that layer of reality for very long because there's just so much more that you can go and explore, mm. literally explore. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, this is the equivalent sometimes of those settings to say 10,000 years ago, there was an epic war. So oh, can't I be part of the epic war, please? Why am I? War, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or there's this magical place you could travel to. Can't I live in the magical place, please? Yeah. Really? So That's... yeah, get, get the extreme elements of your source book and pull them front and center. That'll make travel more interesting. Yeah, sounds like you want the interesting things in your travel. That's what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I think travel should be more... Gaming should be more interesting, guys. That's... <laughs> Simple advice. So hard to implement. <laughs> <laughs> 200 shows. Let's make gaming more interesting. Ace, well, we've we've journeyed, gallivanted through uh, an hour there. Easy, I think. So we're going to have to call it time. Yeah, I'm holding constitution here and it's not looking good. Yeah, I'm feeling weary. But not miserable. That's a tour reference for all you Lord of the Rings fans out there. Okay, well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. And uh, thanks, of course, to our patrons. He pays a couple of dollars every month. It helps us pay our hosting costs and other incidentals like new microphones, whatever, as and when. Uh, and, uh, you know, keeps us motivated. It's uh, that dollar you give us might not seem like very much, but it's a little bit of validation for us uh, and keeps us enthused to provide you with gaming goodness. Uh, we'll be back soon, no doubt, with another in our chapter of these kind of uh, pillars of role-playing. Uh, but until next time, if you have any ideas, if there's something we've missed, are there any great journey mechanics out there? Is there a way of doing journeys, or especially in science fiction, for example, mm. that you think works, that we, we haven't spotted or we've overlooked slightly? Do let us know at the usual places. You can find us on the Twitters, you can email us, you can check out our website, whatwithsmartpartydo.com, or go to Patreon forward slash the Smart Party and leave us a note there. We'd love to hear from you. Cool. I'm Russian, guys. Fancy some? Oh, don't mind if I do. All right, I'll get someone to cook her.